You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric May, Milwaukee Bucks supporter at The Athletic Wisconsin. And joining me as always is my good friend and the founder of BrewHoop.com, Frank Madden. And bringing you today's podcast is Himalaya. You can get Locked on Bucks on the brand new podcasting app, Himalaya, as well as Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. And when you get in your car, tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Bucks. Frank, we asked for questions. All of our wonderful listeners delivered. And... I, I don't even think we're going to like preface this. Like we're just going to hop right in. Let's There's do it. Still... I've got a, I've got a sleeping baby. Uh, and it's, <laughs> we just, we just finished uh, the Blazers uh, winning in Denver in game seven. So we, we do not know the Bucks uh, opponent as of yet on Wednesday, given the Sixers and Raptors are going to be playing in like an hour, but um, yeah, let's get into it because when a baby starts crying, then I'll probably have to have to drive. <laughs> have to drive and deal with that. <laughs> um, all right, let's. Uh, I, from a Bucks perspective, nothing has changed. Um, they took some days off. They're going to get back to work uh, again tomorrow. Uh, so Monday, Tuesday, they'll practice, and then Wednesday they will play. Um, we do not know who they're playing as of yet. But that's okay. We'll find out tonight. Questions. One from NASA Malice. Malice? Uh, two juicy questions to indulge on. The first one, if last season was like being in, being in a Fredona, Fredonia Arby's bathroom, <laughs> what Wisconsin-centric imagery would Frank use to describe the exuberance and excitement of the Bucks this year? Uh, I guess I have to go first to that one, right? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't, I don't know how it started, to be honest, but um, especially those who follow me on Twitter know that when things are going really badly, I'll reference uh, the idea of, of crying in, a, in an Arby's bathroom as being the, the ultimate low point uh, of Bucks fandom. Um, <laughs> for the record, I've never actually cried in an Arby's, let alone the bathroom of an Arby's, but um, as a Bucks fan, I think you'd be justified at, at times if you did. Um, yeah, so man, if, if, if everything kind of came together the way we are hoping it could come together uh what would be the ultimate i mean i I guess like what would be the ultimate celebration like wisconsin-centric celebration um i mean i'm I'm immediately thinking of food because because my my negative was food um so i'll say i will not be in a bathroom anywhere um i would say i mean the the two things i always try to eat when i'm home in wisconsin and these, these are not like you know fine dining options obviously but just for pure you know, reminding me of my childhood and my teenage years and the things I love to eat. Uh, very, very obvious things for me. Cops hamburger, uh, m- strawberry shake, and then uh, I, I also try to squeeze in some some Rocky Rococo's pizza. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, if the, if the Bucks win a championship, I'm just going all in. I'm just going to just have a day of just, you know, indulgence and just go to town and, you know, I, I don't know. Championship day parade, that's I'm, – I'm just doing, you know, whatever – 
Rockies, cops, wherever else uh, <laughs> I can think of getting fat and happy. Uh, so anyway, um, it'll be good for my diet, I guess, if the Bucks don't win a championship. But but that that's what came to mind uh, for me. For me, I'm just thinking like Deer District and like just oh yeah, uh, I don't even know like just crushing beers. I, yeah. I suppose like just pouring beers on people, like d- just going full on stone cold Steve Austin in the deer district. That feels like, you know, like the exuberance and the excitement like that. Cause that kind of sums it all up, right? Like the fact that this new arena exists, that the team is very good. And now like you're able to do all of that, uh, together. So that, that would be my answer. Um, we had a similar question from Adam that I'm going to add to NASA's first question first or I guess second question uh he asked any thoughts about Jason Kidd in Los Angeles any chance the Lakers pick up DeAndre Liggins that's pretty funny um Adam Tuning asks I have no idea why anyone would hire Jason Kidd as an assistant slash head coach based on his time in Milwaukee what are the reasons for Jason Kidd to be an NBA coach again um well (laughs) you want to take this one Frank uh Sure. I mean, I, so first off, shout out to my guy, Chewy, a.k.a. Chew Dog, a.k.a. Chew Pock, my uh, Homestead High School class of 99 uh, bro, um, who, who I've shouted out previously. Um, I mean, I, I think I was listening to uh, the Hoop Collective pod, and I think Brian Windhorst mentioned something, you know, like that that kid had like a player development sort of centric interview when he, whenever he interviewed there. Um and so I'm sure he, you know, like the obvious thing he would say is, oh, Lonzo Ball looks like I did when I was, mm-hmm. you know, coming into the NBA. So I'm going to craft Lonzo Ball into the next Jason Kidd. And Brandon Ingram is, I'm going to give him the Giannis development arc or something, you know, yeah. like just say some stuff about how like he helped develop Giannis and therefore he's going to help develop Brandon Ingram. Never mind that they're very, very different basketball players. Um, and of course that, you know, I think, kids impact on Giannis development I think really understates Giannis's impact on Giannis's Ooh. development I think you know you look at a guy like Giannis um I I think Giannis was going to be a great player probably regardless of of who he gets developed by and um and you know I'm sure there probably was, weren't a lot of PowerPoint slides about Michael Carter Williams and Jabari Parker in in whatever the player development discussion was uh for Jason Kidd mm-hmm. in uh in LA. But, um, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think probably the biggest thing is probably two things. Like to me, I have to assume it's one, they need somebody that Jason, that, uh, LeBron is going to have some respect for based on obviously in this case, Jason gets playing career, not his coaching career, obviously. Um, so presumably there's some perception of, or, or maybe LeBron has just said as much as, you know, I respect Jason Kidd slash you know he can just do whatever lebron did i mean you know jason kidd i I guess i guess if you're gonna pair jason kidd with somebody you might as well be lebron because he's gonna ignore whatever you're supposed to be doing anyway and just you know whatever schemes jason kidd wants lebron's just gonna do whatever he wants anyway um but uh i assume it was some combination of jason kidd's sort of experience in hall of fame pedigree as a player commanding the respect of lebron was part of it and then you know Jason Kidd being able to whisper sweet nothings about, you know, how he's going to develop Alonzo and Brandon Ingram and Kyle Kuzma into, you know, uh, the next Jason Kidd and Giannis Dedekumbo or something like that, right? I, I imagine that's what it is. Um, I find it so bizarre that, like, an arranged marriage between Frank Vogel and Jason Kidd is just so strange to me. And just, I mean, if you're Frank Vogel, like, he's just securing the bag, I think. You know, I mean, Frank Vogel mm-hmm. hasn't made a ton ton of money in his life he was not a 
you know, star NBA player, you know, was an interim head coach who then obviously was in Indiana a while and then had a, you know, a, a fairly nondescript tenure in Orlando. So, I mean, if you're Frank Vogel, like, it's not like you can sit around, like, having your choice of jobs. So if you can get any NBA head coaching job and make millions of dollars a year, you'll probably say, fine, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, you can put, you know, Satan is my lead assistant and I'll, I'll take the money and figure out later. <laughs> um, so I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's what it is, but I mean, here we like, I, I, we'll need a long time to kind of reason through the Lakers exact rationale for these things, because I think you probably agree that the Lakers right now are not exactly <laughs> a model of uh, logical thinking and, uh, and decision-making. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of laughed a lot this weekend (laughs) with all like that. That's just me being honest because you, you just try to figure out what they're doing as a franchise, how they're trying to put things together. And, you know, I mean, I think it's, it's pretty much just the definition of dysfunction. Like it, none of it makes any sense. Like one saddling any, any coach with, his would-be successor as an assistant is just, mm. it's crazy. Like, its it, it doesn't matter if it's Jason Kidd. Like, just doing that, like, just doing that is is, is crazy. Like, that, that it doesn't make any sense because there's no way your coach is ever going to feel comfortable because he knows that you actually want to hire this other guy. And he knows because you insisted that he put, that guy on his stat, like it, it's, it's just wild to me. And um, yeah, I, I would say you summed up the Jason kid um, resume, I think pretty well. Like uh, obviously he would, he would point to development and you know, how, how they've gotten, how the bucks got better under him. And obviously Giannis would be the, the one that he would point to most. Um, so you would have that. And then um, yeah, the fact that LeBron like respects him, that's, that's definitely something to to point to for him as well. So I, I think he summed that up pretty well. All right, Mike. And it, I think, and I think, this, and I think that's the strangest thing about it is that you know, there's like these whispers that he wasn't made the head coach because of the concerns over his domestic violence, you know, cases that happened back, I think, back in Phoenix mm-hmm. and accusations since then. But like you said, I mean, so why, why, like. That, like that's worth only a demotion from head coach to assistant coach <laughs> yeah. and you're going to be okay making him an interim coach presumably in nine months and it doesn't matter then I, I don't know I just don't understand it I mean whatever we could talk all day about it but yeah it's just just very very strange in general some of the some of the logic that seems to be getting thrown around between you know LA and, and everything yeah I'd, uh, yeah it's it's all confusing like uh, okay you can't be the coach because of that but you can be the assistant coach like you're still adding him to the organization. Like what? Yeah. what? So yeah, I, I would agree. It's, it's, it's some weird stuff. Um, all right. Up next, Mike mountain who says greetings from Jacksonville, Florida. He very clearly emailed this question in. This is not a tweet. Um, my name is Mike Mountain. I'm a Milwaukee area native and longtime Bucks fan. I graduated from Whitefish Bay High School in the class of 1981. I'm a classmate of the well-known Bucks fan, Dr. Dave Margolis. Shouts to Dr. Dave. I have very fond memories of watching the Bucks during the glory years of the early 70s. My grandfather's company had tickets one row behind Oscar Robert- Robertson's family, and we had a chance to go to two or three games per year. What a treat that was to see the Bucks battle with the great teams of that era, the Knicks with Earl Monroe, Bill Bradley, and the Lakers with Jerry West. Gail Goodrich are especially memorable. Now, let me fast forward 45 years. My sons, Chip and Brian, and I have been following this 2018-19 Bucks season closely. It is interesting how mutual love of a sports team can bring the generation 
questions together. Our mailbag question is, what, if any, impact will George Hill's outstanding play during the playoffs and his longtime relationship with Coach Bud have upon the Bucks for agency plans this summer? In closing, I want to thank you both for your great work on Locked on Bucks. You have helped to inspire my son, Brian, who graduates from high school next week, and I to start our own podcast, Bri, the sports guy, an autistic young man, and his dad talks sports, which we hope to release three times per week. Thanks again, and go Bucks. So, first off, as soon as they start releasing that podcast, y'all should go listen to it and support, uh, you know, our fellow li- your fellow listeners, I suppose, but, you know, part of the Lockdown Bucks family, the the squad, uh, getting together. So shout out to you guys uh, for that. And I, I guess for, I guess to answer your question about George Hill and, you know, what the Bucks will do in free agency, Frank, I, I guess let's, can you take take us first through the cap stuff with George Hill? So he's scheduled to make, I think it'd be, it'd be 19 million next year. Uh, the Bucks can opt out of that and pay him just one million dollars for it and get out of that deal completely but how does it work after that well then he's just a free agent basically i mean the bucks can can resign him at that point um but they don't have like bird rights to go way over the cap or something like that to resign him which which is tough right because um we've talked a lot about how brooke lopez will presumably be earmarked the the mid-level exception you'd expect to, to try to bring him back so um so yeah i mean it's, it's definitely tough with hill because Obviously, you know, if he even if he doesn't keep up quite this level of play, if he's, you know, just kind of more like average but still good George Hill, um, that's still a guy that that definitely has value as if nothing else a backup point guard in this league for for a good team. And so, um, with all the cap space flying around, I mean, who's to say George Hill can't make five seven million dollars on a short short deal or something like that, right? I mean, I, mm-hmm. nothing would would shock me. Um, maybe he gets like a one year big money offer from some team that can't spend their money otherwise. So. It's definitely tough. I mean, you have to hope that obviously he's enjoyed his time here. Um, I, you know, I, it's kind of funny. I always forget some of the connections Bud has with with other, you know, former Spurs. But um, you know, it's a good point that that they obviously knew each other from when Bud was an assistant um, in San Antonio. So it's not like he's kind of, you know, just had no idea about any of these guys um, beforehand. So I, I don't know. I mean, you kind of cross your fingers. Um, certainly, Hill has been. You know, his role has been made all the more important by Brogdon being injured. Um, but it's it's definitely a tough spot because, you know, again, if like Brogdon got some crazy offer sheet and you decided you didn't want to bring back Brogdon, it's not like you can then go use that money on George Hill instead. Um, and because Hill's, um, I, th- I believe his uh, his uh, option or his, his basically his guarantee date is right before free agency starts you can't just like wait until mid-july and then decide to to buy him out then which obviously would give you a lot more flexibility um because because really like the brook lopez situation is like the big variable there just because you don't have bird rights on brook so um so it's a tough spot and again i think this is one of those reasons why you really want to take advantage of the opportunity you have this year you know i mean you don't know if you're going to have a guy like george Hill coming off the bench again next year uh, you'd love it, obviously, if you could bring him back. But you know, he's also getting older in his early 30s, so um, so it's it's tough. I mean, obviously, you have to love what he's what he's brought. It shouldn't be that surprising given what he's done in the past. And you know, as we've discussed, he's uh, he was previously sort of our dream starting point guard a couple years ago, um, <laughs> given just the way he can play off the ball and um, score and defend um, kind of both backcourt spots. So I would expect him to obviously have lots of opportunities to continue to make an impact here through the rest of the playoffs. But as far as, you know, is he going to come back, sign for the minimum that I don't know. I, I don't want to, 
I don't, I, I think it's tough to kind of expect that because again, he's a guy I think who should have more lucrative offers and he's certainly made a good amount of money. You know, the last couple of years he's made what, 39 million or something like that the last two years combined and had a pretty sizable deal before that as well. But again, you know, when you have a chance to make, you know, two, three, four times as much money, it's tough to expect players to, to take a discount just so they can stay with a winning team. But, you know, again, hopefully, uh, hopefully maybe, maybe he does, but uh, we'll see. I think, hmm, I, I think we're probably at a point where, you know, the Bucks are going to try to move Tony Snell with their first round pick, right? Like, doesn't that feel kind of like what they're going to have to do? Because it, you, you just have so many free agents. Like, obviously we talked about Brooke, but like, you know, if you have like Brooke and Nico and George, you know, you're probably you're probably in a spot where, man, I think you're as currently constructed. You're probably losing two of the three. Like, there, there's probably a good chance that you're not going to be able to have enough money to sign Miritich and Hill. Like, you're not going to be able to be competitive enough in the marketplace uh, to do that. So, you know, no matter how much they like it here. Uh, it might not, it might not matter because they're going to have offers out there. And to me, it just feels like, you know, like that's probably the way to go about it. Right. Like, cause you feel like with Tony Snell, like very, like you have Pat Connaughton for another year. Uh, Sterling Brown kind of came into his own here at the end of the season. Like I would guess you probably feel confident that you can move Snell and, and then just kind of keep it, maybe give yourself the possibility to keep one of those other guys. It's an interesting question. Cause I mean, I think if you're talking about moving a first round pick, you're doing it on or before draft night, typically. I mean, it's, it's rare yep. to make the pick and then trade the pick after they always have more value when, you know, the team trading for it can actually use it to pick whatever guy they want. Um, so it would have to be a team that has basically decided they're not going to use their, uh, their cap space to sign guys or, if they decide that they need a guy kind of just like Tony Snell and they think Tony Snell is just a fine fit and they'll take, you know, take that, that pick, um, you know, as, as part of the package. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it, it's tough because especially with, without a second round pick this year, you know, you, the 60th pick the Bucks would otherwise have is going to Sacramento as part of a previous deal. Uh, they would have had the 57th pick from Denver as part of the, that Roy Hibbert trade, which we was top 55 protected. We did not think that, that pick was ever going to be a thing the Bucks would get, but both those went to mm-hmm. um, New Orleans and, and next year's uh, are also, uh, I think, I don't think they have a pick a second rounder next year either. So um, yeah, things are getting very lean in terms of, you know, draft picks here. So in a lot of ways, I mean, you really want to make this one count because this is going to be a guy who you could have on a very cheap deal for up to four years. And if you get a guy who eventually hits the rotation, that could be very, very valuable as kind of the rest of this team ages around around Giannis. Um, so it's tough because, again, like, you know, do you do you do that in advance, you know, well, in, you know, well, a week before free agency starts? in anticipation of needing to, to get rid of that contract or, or do you, mm-hmm. do you not do it? So I, I think you probably could do a trade kind of like around that, you know, there are other options you might have, like, you know, I mean, part of the challenge is like, you know, another guy, cheap guy, you might be able to use to get someone to trade, to take Tony Snell would be somebody like Sterling Brown, but then your kind of depth or, or DiVincenzo, right? But then your depth is really getting tested because um, they play similar positions, right? So you're kind of really yep. taking a chunk out of your, your wing rotation. So it's a really tough spot. I mean, I think the, you know, Ursan is, is probably a guy that might be 
easier move just because he effectively will be expiring next year. And obviously he's playing, right? I mean, that's the tough part with Tony just getting hurt and then falling out of the rotation is like you can't even – he's not even being able to advertise his skills at this point. Mm-hmm. He's just falling out of the rotation entirely. So um, definitely a, a tough spot for the Bucks to be in. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think there are going to be ways that you can get rid of Snell. Probably you have to, you know, again, attach an asset to it, which isn't appealing – um, the flip side is, uh, you know, with, with a guy like, like Urson, you know, again, if you're in up really against the wall, like if, if, you know, you, you could also stretch him and, and again, I hate to say that, but you could r- free up an additional 4.7 million in room by stretching him over three years. If, if horse came to worse, I, I kind of doubt that would happen. Uh, I imagine you might be able to take, get somebody to take him and then maybe you take less money back or something like that. But, um, but anyway, the gift of Urson's contract, definitely not positive right now but anyway uh we will we will certainly get a lot more into that uh over you know let's say a month from now (laughs) all right uh next question from andrew angle is it just me or is there almost an unsatisfying component to the bucks dominating the playoffs thus far frank alluded to it after game four against the pistons but for 18 years We've had this monkey on our back of not having won a playoff series in 18 years, yet after the Pistons sweep, it barely even resonated. In a similar fashion, during Game 5 versus Celtics, the first half was an edge-of-your-seat intense back-and-forth physical battle, the lead changing with seemingly every possession, while the second half quickly developed into a laugher to the point where I actually felt bad for Brad Stevens, as he looked as though he wished he could crawl in a hole and disappear to avoid watching Kyrie chuck up brick after painful brick when he could actually connect with the rim, that is. In short, my question is, am I crazy for hoping for a much closer dramatic series versus Toronto or Philly simply so this all doesn't feel so hollow and anticlimactic, or should I want my team to sweep and have every game be a blowout to assert dominance? Andrew, thank you for the question. Frank, uh, I think you can speak to that question a little bit more than I can, uh, so I'm going to lean on you here. What, what, is, what, is, what is your thought there? Yeah, I mean, I am the fan between the two of us, so... Um... I mean, it's really hard to say. I mean, like, because one of those things is like, well, if I knew that the Bucks were going to win the series, then is there something appealing about going to seven games and having Giannis hit a buzzer-beating shot? Well, well, yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> um, but in you know, from game to game to game, I mean, you know, we we just don't. I don't know. It's it's hard for me to kind of think about it that way. So I always come back to dominance is always better because I think it just speaks to how well your team is playing as well. And if you can take luck out of the equation i think that's just a positive now obviously there's some i think some intrinsic value in winning some close games and going through that experience especially for younger players um but uh, in the grand scheme of the universe uh give me dominance uh every day yeah i i think uh gotta find a way to enjoy those blowouts uh find a way to enjoy a, a good boat race um, you, you know, you gotta, gotta find a way to get some more out of it. Cause that, that is, um, I, I understand the, uh, you know, maybe the desire for some tense moments. Like that is kind of what, what sports is, is all about and kind of how all of this, uh, you know, like why all of this is fun, but also, you know, just, just take the blots and, and, and keep it moving. Um, all right, a question from William Cat. Now that everyone is crowning Golden State after they eliminated the Rockets in six, can we safely conclude that a Milwaukee Bucks championship season would be the most shocking and surprising season in modern NBA history? The NBA never has surprised champions. 2015 Golden State is maybe the only comp, and the difference here is the Bucks are from the East, and their finals opponent would arguably be the greatest team ever seeking a three-peat. 
That's an interesting question. Is it the most shocking and surprising season in modern NBA history? Um, I mean, I think it has to be up there. Like it is, it is a dramatic turnaround from where they were last year to where they are this year. Um, they've really put it together. You're going to have an MVP season. Um, man, uh, I, I would lean yes, but I also wouldn't need to take a closer look at modern NBA history and try to figure out where we'd be defining that from. Um, but yeah, it, it, it would be a surprising championship, no doubt about it. I think the fours are always because Orleans didn't have anybody like close to that, so like super duper star, top five to seven type player that you just typically need to win a championship. Um, and the fact that they beat the Lakers, who obviously had you know looked unbeatable for years running in, in the finals before that, and they did it in such convincing fashion, winning 4-1. So I think the 4 Pistons have to kind of probably be the most surprising. I mean, in, in 3 they won 50 games with Rick Carlisle, their coach. They hired Larry Brown, and then they win 54 games the following year. So they weren't even like you know, team that, that like, the Bucks dominated. And they did have an expected win loss of 59 and 23, so they were certainly better than, than their point differential. They were uh, plus 6.6, you know, versus you know, the Bucks this year, plus 8.9. So um, I think they were surprising in that, you know, just that team with that roster did it. Obviously, the, the Rashid trade kind of changed the outlook for them a bit. Um, ironically, they beat the Bucks in the first round of the playoffs that year, 4-1. Uh, so I, I still return to the Pistons probably as my kind of most shocking team. Um, and, and I just remember it at the time as well, too. Like, that, that was sort of when I was starting to really... I mean, I followed basketball from the early 90s, but like as far as really feeling like I can remember kind of how people perceived stuff at the time, like I really kind of that one kind of jumps out at me. But I think Golden State is probably the better analog just because it's funny now we think of them as this like massive juggernaut. But, you know, pre-KD, I mean, they were much more of a kind of traditionally like, I don't want to say traditional because I mean, they have obviously these two all-time great shooters and then Draymond, right? Those are the kind of the top three guys. And then they had more depth than they currently do around them. Um, so I, I think it's an interesting, um, I think they're an interesting comp. And obviously we've kind of made those comparisons. You know, they have kind of the coach who maybe doesn't get extract as much as they can from them. And then the new guy comes in and really unlocks them on both sides. And, you know, the obviously the MVP parallels between Steph and likely Giannis are, are really interesting. So I think um, I think Golden State is probably the best analog. And obviously, <laughs> cross your fingers that you also get the championship win uh, to, to match it. Um, but I would say Detroit would remain kind of the most surprising to me, and at least in kind of like, you know, somewhat recent history. Um, yeah. Hmm. Okay. Um, another question here from Tyler, um, who ask uh tyler from houston here have a few questions um one it appears the bucks got lucky by having to default to horst in the gm search it's hard to criticize his total body of work to this point but i've seen a lot of folks giving credit to john hammond still in question how much say horst has or if it was bud slash ownership making these calls and horse is just the face do you think horst has the same say as other gms the reason i ask is because i think having a young gm that gets gets to assemble the team is just as important as a great coach and star player. Um, I, I think I'm thinking back to those conversations, um, you know, that we had when the, the hiring went down and, you know, just how sloppy and bad the process was. Um, 
yeah, it, it is kind of startling to think that, you know, they've really put together a, a really, a really good squad here. And, um, you know, as far as whether or not horse gets like credit or whatever, like, I, I mean, I guess when I look at like a trade, like the Mirtich trade, like that is, that is some savvy GMing, uh, like being able to make that move, gain the picks to put together and like do all of that. And like, that all seems like, like ownership isn't uh, as smart as the Bucks owners are. Like they're not going to, you know, be thinking about putting together all of these moves uh, to eventually have something like that. Like that to me was a very, that was a very like detailed general manager move. And, and again, like Bud obviously is going to have some say, uh, with players and stuff like that. But at the same time, like in the middle of a season, like that's, that's a general manager's job. Like bud uh, is, is obviously going to be more focused on coaching during that time. So, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's obviously going to, uh, and I remember when we talked about this kind of originally, like, I mean, I, I don't know how different that is than most teams. Like I think a, a lot of good teams have uh, blurred lines let's say. Um, and uh, since we're talking about Bud, I mean, there's, there's no greater spot than obviously pop, right? Like I think pop and uh, RC Buford have, you know, had some blurred lines there uh, over the years. And like that, that kind of is, is, uh, is the way that it, it can kind of go in the NBA. So um, I, I don't, one, I don't really have much interest in parsing out uh who gets credit for what move or anything like that. But, um, you know, I think it's it the, the say that John Horst has is probably quite slim, similar to, to many other GMs. Yeah. I mean, I think there's obviously there has to be a symbiotic relationship in the best scenarios. There's always symbiotic relationships between coach and, and player. And I think this is, you know, no different than, than I think probably the best franchises, right. In terms of when things work, um, that said, I mean, you know, I think there's been a combination of some of the player picks, like, you know, again, like how much did Bud want Brooke Lopez and Miritich and, well, Ilyasova, probably some blame goes more to Bud on that. I think that one had had Bud's fingerprints on it or, mm-hmm. or even Dante DiVincenzo, who we talked about, Bud appearing to be a Bud guy coming into the draft. Um, you know, again, I think player personnel stuff, oftentimes the coach has more impact on. Um, I think then kind of the mechanics of deal making is where the front office has a bigger say. And I think, um, you know, in John Horst's first year when Jason Kidd and Joe Prentier were around, you know, I don't think he really necessarily differentiated himself as a, as a GM, you know, I mean, the Bledsoe deal, I think ended up being a little bit controversial for a lot of people just because it was giving up a first round pick and it didn't seem like the Bucks necessarily had like a path to really being able to use someone like Eric Bledsoe and, and kind of maximize the talent. Um, I mean, we were on board with that trade when it happened, despite the risk of giving up a future first, just based on the protections. And, you know, I think we just thought they had to do something right. Uh, sorry, Matthew Delvadova, but you know, um, and just Brogdon not being like a, a true point guard. So, um, but I think you just look at, you know, some of those deals, like you mentioned the Miritich trade, but I mean, to me, like, you know, just on the margins, the Bucks have just gotten really good at like kind of winning on the margins of deals. And by that, I mean, you know, they're not the team that's throwing in, you know, a really good asset for nothing or like, oh, why did they give up? Why did they not protect that more? Why did they not do this or that? Like, you know, the, the deals they made with Washington to get extra second round picks and then to be able to use those to mm-hmm. to get Miritich without giving up, you know, a high 
first, you know, high, a uh, first round pick at all. And I think probably the biggest move that is now obviously looming large is, you know, we like the, the Del Vadova Henson contract dump. And part of it was because like, wow, you actually like you, you first have, you gave up a pretty heavily protected first round pick and you got an actual like rotation player back in George Hill. And, you know, obviously Hill sort of had kind of a weird season, didn't shoot well for a long period, but then over the last month of the season, especially with Brogdon out, started to look a lot better. And obviously, I mean, you know, if, even if George Hill is like mediocre the rest of the way, I mean, you got your money's worth from George Hill in terms of his, ro- you know, his rotation spot this year. So um, I think that deal in particular is one of those deals that, again, like, was it a salary dump or was it something more? I think more and more it's looking like a deal that that is going to pay dividends for the Bucks in terms of their performance this season, not just in terms of flexibility moving forward. So I think I think there's been obviously a nice combination of picking players that make sense in Bud's system, which obviously you give Bud and Horse credit for, and then I think some of these moves on the margins to you know use uh, trade exceptions like the Jody Meeks deal, use a trade exception to get a, uh, an extra second round pick. Um, and then to, you know, package all those up later to get a, an asset like Meritage. So, um, you know, ultimately it's all just table, setting the table. Um, but I think certainly the front office and coaching staff, the organization broadly has done a great job giving them every chance now to compete for a title this year. And obviously the next challenge is going to be keeping, keeping a lot of these guys together. Uh, so you can do it again next year. And I, I know we've got some questions around that too. Yeah. Tyler's other question was, you know, is there any chance the Bucks can keep this entire core together? I know it's going to be hard to keep Hill, Nico, Brogdon, and Middleton, but as a fan, I can't help but hope after seeing what they have done this year, especially Hill, as he has been a huge key so far in the playoffs. And I mean, we've we've kind of covered this, and I think we we've had some other people kind of ask about that um, throughout all this. We already kind of touched on it, um, so I mean, I think it's it's pretty difficult. Uh, to, to get done. Obviously we talked about some of the mechanics of, you know, possibly moving uh Ilya Silva deal, possibly moving a Tony Snell deal. And uh, it would be really hard. Uh, like, I think that's, that's, I mean, that, that's kind of the, just the reality of it, right? Like it would be really hard to, to do it again. And I, I do think there's also some thought that, or at least in my head that, you know, you get, you do have to sort of trust yourself and what I mean by that is, okay, you put together this team, you know, maybe you don't need to sign all these veterans back. Like maybe, you know, you develop a little bit from, from within and then you also go out and, you know, you try to find a next year's George Hill or something like that. Like, I think that's kind of how you have to, to view these things that, you know, the other side of the coin is like not just – signing everyone because it worked one year like it, it is you know being a little bit more choosy and, and trying to decide uh how, how you could try to go through that yeah and you know you've got guys like dante DiVincenzo who hopefully will have a bigger role next year you know sterling brown came through more as the season went on had a bigger role um you, you know and you have to kind of you know dj wilson as well obviously you hope that he's going to be a guy that's going to be a regular rotation player which i think factors into the way you evaluate Ilya Sova and Miritich, right so um again i think it's just saying if you've got assets how are you going to to leverage those guys moving forward and then you just have to make trade-offs and what's the most important who are the priorities really going to the offseason i think we had a question about that as well Yeah, we uh, we had a question from Mike Z, and he said, rank the importance of re-signing these guys, Brogdon, Mirtich, Hill, and Lopez, 
uh, first off, I want to give you a shout out, Mike, for uh, on Twitter at the Real Swaggy Z. Um, I want to give you a shout out for not including not including Chris Middleton on that list. Well done. Uh, thank you. I appreciate you for that. Uh, but Brogdon, Miritich, Hill, and Lopez. Um, to me, I, I think Lopez is probably the most important out of all of those. Um, I, I just think what he does for the team and just the fact that, you know, he hasn't been able to be played off the floor in the playoffs, played 82 games this season. And I think he is most central to everything that this team has done. Like opening up the floor for Giannis, uh, being able the whole let it fly thing. Like I think really makes a whole lot more sense when, you know, it's him doing it out to 30 plus feet. And then he was a huge part of the defense, which obviously, uh, you know, maybe not quite as much in the playoffs, but the Bucks still played him a lot during that Celtics game, like, or during that Celtics series. Like, he still played a lot. He still managed to have an impact. He still blocked shots. He still made it tough at the rim. Like, uh, I thought, you know, he, he was really big there. So for me, I would put Lopez at the top. Then, oh, then I guess it's Malcolm Brogdon. Uh, I think you're seeing that maybe the Bucks could survive a little bit uh, without him uh, in these playoffs and find different ways, but also that's because George Hill is playing out of his mind at the moment. Um, so I guess Brogdon, then, then Hill, then Miritich. Miritich feels like the kind of ultimate luxury mm, uh, yeah. to, to, to be able to have like another guy like Brooke Lopez, but you know, obviously his, his skill set's a little bit more limited. He's not the defender that Lo- Lopez is. Uh, he brings obviously the three point shooting, but you know, he doesn't do much off the bounce. He's, he's not going to do really much else other than shoot threes. It, I will give him credit. That was a dime that he had at the start of game five uh, for Bledsoe in that corner three. Uh, but Still, I, I feel like Miritich is kind of the, the ultimate luxury. So I would go Lopez, Brogdon, Hill, Miritich. Where would you go, Frank? I, I would probably lean the similar direction. I mean, it's kind of hard to compare, right? Because Malcolm, you can pay kind of whatever, however much you are willing to go to. Uh, and he's a restricted free agent. So like you have all sorts of advantages there with Malcolm as far as being able to bring him back. Like his market will likely be a little bit constrained because of his restricted status. Nico, you have bird rights on. So, you know, you can actually pay a, you know, a lot more to bring him back versus Brooke and George Hill. Yeah, obviously, well, technically George Hill's under contract next year, but um, you know, you're in a weird spot there because even if you prioritize Brook Lopez, you likely can't pay him more than the mid-level anyway. So it's a little weird, I th- but I would agree. I think the guy who, you know, over especially a regular season, I think Brook Lopez has the biggest impact. Um, I think his his value in the playoffs, though, is also much more matchup dependent. Like, I think against the Sixers, uh, he's really, really valuable. Against the Celtics, obviously, you know, even though he still played, I mean, he was not good. <laughs> um, he did not really have a, a huge impact in that series. Um, you know, rim protection against the Pistons was obviously great. You know, I think he was really valuable in that series. So um, I'd probably say similar. I mean, I think in terms of like, you know, bang for your buck, just because you probably can't pay Brooke as much any, you, know, you can't pay him as much anyway. Um, I think Brooke probably gets the most bang for your buck. But like we said, I mean, it's it's a little bit apples and oranges to compare Tim to a guy like Brogdon or even Meritich just because you don't have bird rights with him. So I, I'd probably go in a similar order as you did. Um, and again, I think a lot of it with like Nico is, uh, 
you know, again, if you don't bring him back, then you have a lot more flexibility to play DJ Wilson next year, even if Ursan is back. Uh, and, you know, I think, I think certainly with Hill, you hope obviously DiVincenzo, maybe can he develop into not like a, a lead ball handler, but can he be kind of like a second side creator? Can he play with Giannis and maybe be, um, you know, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what, what, what Dante can do once, once he gets healthy and has a little bit more experience. But um, I, I'd say your ordering was, was probably pretty, uh, pretty reasonable. And of course, um, the reason we don't talk about Chris Middleton, because we think he's the obvious first priority and he will be the first priority for the Bucks in the summer, whether, whether you want him to get a max contract or not, <laughs> the, that's just kind of the reality at this point. It definitely is. Um, all right. I think here are a couple of quick ones. We should be able to knock out uh, big boy zero two zero zero on Twitter as who's most likely to be on the team next year, Dante Snell or Sterling um, Dante. Uh, I would be shocked yeah, if Dante really DiVincenzo would be traded. Um, I think the other two could possibly mm, do that. Uh, the other two could be throw-ins for, for different trades. Obviously, we already talked about Snell. Um, you know, maybe Sterling's an asset to some team that, that they would move. But it would shock me if Dante DiVincenzo would not be on the Bucks next year. Um, Brian Kurth on Twitter asks, out of all the teams remaining in the playoffs, who presents the worst matchup for the Bucks? The Warriors, because they're the they're the Warriors, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's ironic, right? Because the Warriors play they, they play a lot of guys who don't shoot that well, right? Ironically, um, you know, when when we've seen the Bucks play against them, um, you know, we've seen the Bucks probably zone up like against ball handlers more so than. And I don't mean the. I mean they're still playing man to man, but then like. Like they'll zone up help off of which, whichever big guy is playing for the for the Warriors at that time. So, sorry, Kevon Looney, Milwaukee native, you're not getting a lot of attention uh, as you run up the court from the Bucks. Uh, you're going to be, you know, Steph and Clay; those guys are going to be the focus of all the attention. Kevin Durant, obviously, as well. So, um, I, I would agree. I mean, I think just the fact that you've got both Steph and Clay and KD asterisk. We'll see, right? I mean. Even if the Bucks mm-hmm. make the finals and the Warriors make the finals, um, I have I don't know what Kevin Durant's status will be at that point. Uh, if the Warriors get that far, presuming they do, um, they're going to have to go against Portland. Who, I mean, I still think the the Warriors are going to be favored, even if KD's out that entire series. But um, it's a tough question, you know what what, what exactly uh, how, you know exactly what version of the Warriors. Um, well, I don't want to say what version of the Warriors you, you get. I mean, Draymond is playing at a super high level, uh, which kind of didn't happen for much of the regular season. And obviously, Steph and Clay are, are kind of rounding into into their usual form as well. So I would agree. I think they're just the scariest. They remain the scariest team just in general. Um, but other than that, um, I mean, do it for, for either the, the team that want to see one of the teams from the East that uh, will figure out who's playing the East Finals tonight. Um, I mean, do either of these teams scare you more than the other between Toronto and Philadelphia? Um, I think it's probably, man, I think it kind of goes back to what we talked about uh, before the playoffs where you had said Embiid is probably the scariest player out there, like left in the Eastern Conference. And, you know, I'm trying to decide between that and what playoff Kawhi has been because he's been he's been just fantastic. Um so I, oh man, I guess it's probably to me the Sixers. Even though the the Raptors have had their 
they've had it together just about more than anyone in the league outside of the Bucks this entire season. Like they, they know who they are and they've done it. Playoff Raptors have come back around a little bit this year and it, it's kind of happened again for everyone not named Kawhi. So I think ultimately I would say uh, I'd be a little bit more fearful of the Sixers. It's kind of funny. I've, I mean, we talked about this the other day and, and Kawhi. Um, I mean, I said, as, as you mentioned, I said, the Embiid factor kind of scared me more than any other individual player going into the playoffs. Um, but it, I don't know. It's been it's been a little tough. I mean, he's obviously had sort of this illness, um, and you know who knows what's going on with his knee as well. Um, but he's kind of hasn't been consistently dominant. So obviously, he hasn't been consistently dominant, um, especially in this second round series. So I, I don't know. I mean, if 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 he is feeling a lot better and and gets over whatever this upper respiratory infection is, or you know, being 20 pounds too heavy or whatever the real issue is with him right now. Um, I don't think he's going to lose 20 pounds by next series, but um, if it, you know, really is just an illness that's been the main issue, then certainly, you know, we've seen how he can give you fits, right? And and even though the Bucks yeah. have a guy in Brooke Lopez who I think can handle him reasonably well relative to, you know, the rest of the league, um, but he's not shutting Joel down. I mean, I don't think anybody is necessarily so yeah i don't know i can go either way i think toronto scares me a little bit more um just because i think they just seem like more kind of like i don't know they just seem like they were more consistently functional during the season and obviously a lot of that's just because they were a more stable team even with Kawhi missing a lot of games due to kind of rest and all that other stuff um you know we haven't seen them with gasol which doesn't really scare me as much because i don't know i mean as good as he is defensively i'm I don't think Marcus Gasol having to defend Brook Lopez um, helps the Raptors contain Giannis. Um, I think the Raptors probably are better off having to go smaller against the Bucks and having you know more more mobile guys. Um, you know, OG Ananobi's been out all all playoffs due to appendicitis and having his appendix removed a few weeks ago. And again, not that any of these guys individually can like stop Giannis, but you know if you have lineups that have you know multiple guys between OG and um, Siakam and Ibaka on the floor, like maybe they can kind of crowd Giannis and and do some of the things that maybe we saw this the Celtics do at times. But I don't know, right? I mean, I think the irony with the Sixers is Embiid's probably like the single best like defender of Giannis trying to go at the rim that's left. But the fact that they mm-hmm. will probably like be okay with just putting Embiid on an island and that makes it also really hard to cover Giannis in transition because his main defender is just not going to be able to get up and down the court with him. Um, I feel like it, it, in a way it's a little weird because even as good as Joel is, um, I mean, we've seen it. Like it's it's hard for Philly to kind of contain Giannis consistently when you're expecting, you know, your 300-pound center. You know, he's listed at 250, which is hilarious. But, uh, you know, when your 7'2", 300-pound <laughs> center is having to, you know, sprint up and down the court to keep up with Giannis. I mean, that's 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 really tough, especially given that he's had some physical issues. So, I don't know. I, I still feel like Philly's probably a little, maybe a little bit preferable, more preferable of a matchup. But um, I think you know, they're going to have their hands their their hands full. I mean, going to be some nice symmetry, right? Like if you get the Raptors, you have a chance to get revenge on the team that beat you two years ago after beating the team that beat you a year ago in the last round. Um, and if it's Philly. It didn't occur to me this until a couple of days ago that it would be a rematch of the 0-1 East Finals um, with between Philly and the Bucks, which which would be pretty mm-hmm. funny. So um, anyway, I think both teams, uh, you know, both teams are talented, present their problems. Both teams, I think Bucks should be favored against, but 
you know, this is why we just want Wednesday to get here sooner, sooner rather than later. All right. Um, I guess some stuff. Uh, Dylan Piccolo asks uh, at DP underscore hoops on Twitter. Can Pascal Siakam guard Giannis? And if he can, does that change Giannis guarding Kawhi? And um, can Pascal Siakam guard Giannis? No, no one can guard Giannis. Um, I would like to make that very clear, but um the, the way that you just kind of laid that out, like, you know, it's obviously like another body that you can, you can put on Giannis and Siakam has been just fantastic uh, this entire season. But um, I, I, I mean, I don't think the Raptors really have a great matchup against Giannis. Like, I, I don't think there's, there's one guy on that roster where you're like, oh yeah, that's, that's a good matchup uh, against Giannis. Like Kawhi's not big enough. Obviously, you're not going to do like Danny Green. Like Marcus Saul is not quick enough to to cover Giannis, so you can't go the center route. Like it has to be Pascal Siakam, and um, I don't I don't think he's really been uh, all that effective against Giannis this season. Like I don't I don't think he'll he'll shut him down or anything like that. And um, Giannis guarding quiet, like that's just not a thing that they're going to do. Giannis is. It, his strength is not as a one-on-one defender. It never has been. And I think you could see it in the fourth quarter of the last game in Toronto. You know, they just put him in pick and rolls and like him guarding the ball handler in a pick and roll is not a situation you want to be in. Like he just kept getting caught up on him, and Kawhi was getting jumpers and getting to the rack. Like uh, that's just not something in the book. The, the, I, I just don't think it's a good idea. Yeah. It- Ibaka's like shown flashes at times. Like he's had some big blocks on Giannis in the last couple of years. Um, but you know, again, like is, are any of these guys people you can put on an Island? Like it's just really tough. And I, I think the thing is too, I mean, I think the most important thing that Siakam does is, I mean, I certainly would expect Giannis to guard Siakam initially um, and probably stray off him a lot and, you know, dare him to hit corner threes. Um, I think the one thing the Siakam does do though is, I mean, he, he can at least pressure Giannis in terms of, you know, he'll drive, he'll he'll at least try to go at Giannis a little bit. You know, could you get a couple of fouls on Giannis? Um, certainly, that's a possibility, right? I mean, we've seen Giannis have foul trouble in, in this playoffs a couple of times, uh, so at least that's that's something that that they could do with Siakam. Um, that I think Ibaka doesn't really do. You know, he's not going to put it on the floor and attack you. He's going to want to shoot jumpers and just kind of be yeah. a pick and pop guy. Gasol kind of similar. Um, so I, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I think. I doubt they would do this. Um, I think one thing that could be interesting would be um, like if they end up doing a lot of like Marcus high pick and roll, pick and pop type action. Like, I don't know. Gasol just like, he doesn't really look to shoot. So he's not as like, we talked about this the other day. Like he doesn't necessarily look to shoot enough to really kill you on those. Um, but, you know, you could also throw Giannis into those, Again, Gasol might try to like post him up or something, but I mean, whatever. Like they, that t- kind of takes them out of what they normally do. But could you do that if if you're trying to avoid, you know, Brook Lopez being kind of thrown into high pick and rolls against a pick and pop big man? You could do that, and then you could have Brook Lopez sort of, you know, um, dare dare Siakam to shoot or something like that, right? So there are a lot of different things the Bucks could do. Um, I think defensively, um, which I think is again kind of matters because at least with Siakam. Giannis actually has to do something, yep. right? Like, I think if a guy like Ananobi's on the floor, um, then then Giannis is probably just going to kind of let him stand in the corner and roam off him and dare him to, to kind of make some threes. Um, but uh, but I don't know. And let me let me throw this question in here. Um, 
which I think kind of kind of relates to to what I was just alluding to. But Daniel Klinsman asked, um, "Would you rather see the Bucks switch or go back to the old pick and roll scheme that was used during the regular season?" Um, I, let's I guess maybe let's narrow it to to Philly or Toronto. I mean, do I think either of those teams force you to maybe play differently than kind of the typical zone drop scheme, or do you think? we'll see the Bucks kind of switch a lot less against either of those teams. I mean, I, I think not switching is kind of their preference. And, you know, I I would kind of guess you're going to see them approach this series the same way as they approached the first series in that like, we're better than you. We're going to play how we want to play and kind of do all that. And, and again, you know, maybe that, that'll be stubborn or maybe that won't be the way that they go and they will go uh, switch like one through four um, to, to kind of start that series. But, you know, when you, when you look at those two teams, like I, I don't know that they have the the playmakers and play the style of basketball that the Celtics do that necessitates that because, you know, really like the Bucks were, you know, switching one through four pick and rolls and the Celtics run a bunch of those. Uh, again, I need to obviously dig on the film on whoever they get, but again, I, I don't think the the Sixers and Raptors are running a ton of those. Like I think their offenses are both a, a little bit more uh, straightforward. So um, I would guess you, you're going to see them come out. And as far as would I rather see them run one or the other? I, honestly, I, they were the best defense in the league running the their original defense so like they i think they could do that just fine again so I, I don't know that i have a preference what about you yeah i think against philly i mean simmons obviously being the point guard typically i mean jimmy has taken on more of a ball handling responsibility and i don't like the idea of going over on jimmy as much i think that kind of gives him more options as a playmaker and scorer um so we'll see about that specifically but i mean against simmons i mean we've seen obviously Giannis and lopez just zone him up and make it really hard for him to really kind of get anything going. So, um, so I probably would say against Philly and, and also as well, I mean, you want Embiid shooting jump shots. So I think dropping on him and kind of daring him to shoot isn't, isn't a bad strategy. Uh, and then Toronto, I think a lot of it just comes down to, I mean, if Gasol starts shooting threes, then, then maybe you have to do something a little bit differently. But um, I think again, like it's a tool that I think the Bucks need to kind of have at their disposal, but it might be more useful against a team like the Warriors than, than either of the teams coming at them in the, in the East finals. All right. Um, let's see. I'm trying to. Figure- I've, I've got a crying baby, so why don't we wrap up today? You, we want to do more of these tomorrow. I think we definitely could do that. That sounds good to me. All uh, right. Hi, Matilda. Hope hope you're doing okay. Um, so <laughs> she's, she's angry about not having more basketball to watch. So you know she should be. She is well within her right. Um, all right. That is going to be it for us for today on Locked On Bucks for Frank Men. I'm Eric Name. Uh, this has been Locked on Bucks. Remember, you can get the show every day. Subscribe to Locked on Bucks on the new Himalaya podcast app. An ever-expanding podcast world you need Himalaya with their personally curated playlist and new features every day. Download Himalaya at your app store and subscribe to Locked on Bucks. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can subscribe to the show on the new Himalaya podcast app as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And when you get in your car, tell your smart device to play podcast Locked on Bucks. For Frank, I'm Eric. This has been Locked on Bucks. We'll do more of the mailbag tomorrow.